Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us as we talk about foundations of meteorology. We will start by talking about foundations of meteorology right now. And then after that, we'll go into global winds and we'll have several other sessions where we slowly work our way through. We'll talk about local winds and we'll talk about a lot of other situations as well. Let's start right from the beginning with foundational knowledge about atmospheric composition. Question number one, what is the most common gas in the atmosphere? Telly. Nitrogen. Yes, exactly. A lot of people think it's oxygen, but it's actually nitrogen. And a fun fact, a lot of times in larger airplanes, they'll fill the tires with nitrogen and not with the regular ambient air because it doesn't expand and contract as much. It has to also do with the moisture content. So if nitrogen is the most common gas, what is the percentage of nitrogen? Tell it. <laughs> 78%. Yes. Okay. So what's the second most common gas? It's like a little bit uh, less than 21%, right? Yeah. Most people just say 21%. 21. Yeah. yeah. And so what is that again at 21%? Uh, oxygen. Exactly. Perfect. So nitrogen, 78%, oxygen, 21%, and every other gas is the remaining 1%, including the next most popular is called argon. And then after that, you've got all the other gases, including carbon dioxide. Okay, slightly trickier question. As you go up in altitude, people say that there is less oxygen. Do they mean that the percentage decreases or do they mean something else? Philip? Partial pressure is different. The, the distribution of the gases is still the same. Yes. So it's still 21% oxygen, but there's just fewer total air molecules. Okay, great. We have finished our first section. Second section is the layers of the atmosphere. Now, the good news is that, at least at the private pilot level, you don't have to memorize every layer, but at a minimum, you need to know what layer of the atmosphere we are in. So what is the lowest layer of the atmosphere? It's the stratosphere, right? Close. That's the second. Troposphere. Yeah, yeah. So the troposphere is the layer where we live. And it's the layer where most of the weather is as well. It's very rare to have weather break above the troposphere. So the question is, 
why? What acts as a cap and holds all of the weather in the troposphere? Philip. Tropopause. Yes. The tropopause is a cap that holds the weather in, or most of the weather, into the troposphere. And the reason that works is because of how the temperatures are. What we say is that there's a pause in the lapse rate of the temperatures. Another way to say it is that as you go up in the troposphere, the lowest layer, the temperatures get colder, but they actually hold steady and stop getting colder in the tropopause. Then what's interesting is they actually get warmer again in the next layer. And Telly, what is that next layer again after the tropopause? That's the stratosphere. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So then it gets warmer again in the stratosphere. And then there's another pause in temperatures. And that is called the stratopause. Then it gets colder again. It pauses again. And then it gets warmer again. So my question to all of you is what are the next layers? So you have the bottom is tropopause. I'm sorry. Excuse me. The bottom is troposphere. Then you have the tropopause. Then you have the stratosphere, then the stratopause. What's the next layer after that? That one's the mesosphere. Then you have the mesopause. And then you have the thermosphere. So that's the top layer. And even that can be broken into, I think that is broken normally into two smaller layers. The top one's called the ionosphere. And you're basically starting to get out to outer space. So here's a question that confuses a lot of people. In theory, the handout that I have on page one of the handout, and also this is from FAA materials, it says that the temperature rises as you go to the thermosphere. In other words, as you're getting closer to outer space, it's telling you that the temperature is getting warmer. But most of us know from watching movies about outer space that it really doesn't feel warm in outer space. How did that happen? What is that really about? What I've heard is that when they're measuring temperature, from a technical perspective, they're looking at the speed of the air molecule. So as you go up in altitude, the speed of the air molecules is actually quite fast. It's just that there aren't a lot of them, which is why it would feel cold. Does anyone have anything to add or comments about what we've said so far? Would the speed of the molecule be influenced by the low pressure in the upper atmosphere? Yes, I believe that that's why. It's partly because there are fewer molecules and gravity isn't pulling as hard on them and squishing them together. I believe that that is essentially what's happening. We have covered atmospheric composition and we've covered the layers of the atmosphere. Here's one more quick question Can the weather break above the troposphere and the tropopause in any condition? Is there ever a chance that the weather would go above it? Yeah. I mean, above the tropopause, you can get like cumulonimbus clouds and the tops break up uh, into it. Yeah. There might be a really violent storm with enormous convective activity and it might be able to break above it somewhat. Okay. Let's talk about foundations of weather theory. What is the root cause of all weather, at least according to all the government tests? Philip? Solar radiation. 
Yeah, oh, that is correct. And there's another way of putting it, Gap. Uneven heating of the Earth's surface. Yes. So they're both saying the same thing. Unequal heating of the Earth's surface comes from the solar radiation, and that is the root cause of all weather. And I know that a lot of you are already professionals and well-studied, and so you got the right answer. It is kind of fun to ask that question to a group of people who have never thought about the root cause of weather before. You get a lot of things like, well, is it the wind? Is it the pressure? But that is the root cause. So why is there unequal heating of the Earth's surface? Gab. Basically, the sun travels around the Earth in a different way uh, around each time of the year. Oh, that's cool. That's medieval style, Gab. Sorry. The Earth travels in a way, different way around the sun, uh, depending on the time of the year. Essentially, yeah, Phil. Yeah, Earth rotation and inclination of the Earth. Yes. Okay, so now we're starting to, to get where we need to go with rotation and inclination. So let's start kind of on a big view of outer space, and then we'll kind of work our way into local. So first of all, we know that it's warmer at the equator than it is at the poles. Why is it warmer at the equator? Let's start by talking about that. Enrique. Because that will be the shortest distance between the Earth and the heat source. In our case, would be the sun. So you get the, the most amount of energy in the equator. Yes. So the equator is essentially closer to the sun. Or another way to say it is that the sun hits the equator at close to a 90 degree angle. By the time you go to the North and South Pole, the sun is not at as direct of an angle. It's more of a shallow angle the way that the sunlight is hitting it. So that's one reason. And we know it's warmer at the equator. Another reason, again, you can talk about the inclination of the earth and your seasons. As the earth does rotate around the sun, you've got winter and summer. So that obviously leads to different heating and cooling. And then now you can also talk about night and day, the rotation. Night and day, obviously, that's warm and cold. What other factors contribute to warm and cold? Anything on a smaller level, not just a global level? How about just different surfaces? So as a hobby, I used to fly gliders. And we knew some surfaces created better updrafts from the warm rising air than others. For example, if you had a brown field from a farmer, that would give you a better updraft than a green field. And the other thing we knew is that if we really, really needed an updraft, we could try to find a large parking lot, especially if it was like a nice black top parking lot, and it would create all sorts of rising air. We also knew that if we flew over a lake or water, we would normally get a sinking motion and a downdraft. So those are the reasons, or some of the reasons, that you could have unequal heating of the Earth's surface. Now, if that is the root cause, let's talk about what that leads to, or like the second step. And there are really five steps that we're going to go through. If you have warm air, we know that warm air rises and cold air sinks. When the warm air is rising, what kind of pressure area is created right below it on the surface? Gab. 
It will be a low area of pressure. Yes. If you think about it, the air is not pushing down. It's pulling up, essentially. So we call that low pressure. So the opposite is true. If there is cold air sinking, what kind of pressure area would that be? High pressure at the surface. Exactly. Okay, so that's step number two. The unequal heating leads to pressure. Step number two is unequal pressure. So in meteorology, what do we say about high and low pressure? Which way does the air flow? Enrique? So pretty much because everything in nature tends to be balanced, that is also valid for air masses. The airs tend to flow from high to low to balance the masses. Exactly. In nature and in aerodynamics, air moves from a high to a low pressure. And that is often called the pressure gradient or the pressure gradient force, the force that moves it from the high to the low pressure. So that takes us to step number three. Step number one was unequal heating. Step number two was different pressure areas. And step number three is called convection. And that talks about how the air moves from the high to the low pressure. So on the ground, that's easy to visualize. And there's a picture on page two, if you would like. You just see it with an arrow moving from the high to the low. But the air can't go up forever at the low. What happens at the top? What happens to the air? How does it really mix? Does anyone want to explain that? What I'm really asking about is called convection, which is the mixing of air. And everyone understands the bottom where the high moves to the low, but then it curves over again on the top. And what's actually happening is there's something called an upper level high. At some point, the air rising off the low can't rise anymore. It creates a localized high pressure there. And then there's another pr lower pressure that it flows over to, which is above where the air is sinking. And because as the air sinks, it's kind of like creating a vacuum up aloft. And so the air kind of flows across the top and then it flows back down again. And there's this cycle that just keeps going and going and going. It can be hard to visualize in the air, but has anyone tried an experiment where you boil water in a pot on the stove and you see the water moving around in a similar pattern? We did a science experiment when I was in high school, so that would be like 12 to 16. And they had this really big, almost like fish tank with a heater at the one end and nothing at the other. And they'd boil it for a while. Well, not boil it, but, you know, heat it up. And they'd shine a light so then you could see it on the, on the wall. The water rises and then curves over and then falls and then the cycle kind of repeats. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, if you have the privilege of doing an experiment to see it in water, maybe you can use some dye in the water or something like that. It can be really neat. Okay, so convection is the mixing of air. It's these cycles where the air kind of moves across and then up and across and down and across over and over. And that is the third step. Before we move on to the fourth step, we need to talk about the difference between another similar sounding word, which is conduction. Would anyone 
be willing to explain what the difference is between convection and conduction. Conduction is the passage of energy between two bodies, mainly solids, but it can kind of be done with gas. Yeah. So so the word I was looking for was a solid. So if convection passes through, well, it's air and liquids, then conduction is when it passes through a solid. So now the question is, which one happens faster? If you have a really hot surface and you put your hand near it, is the heat going to pass through your hand faster by traveling through the air or by touching the surface? By touching the surface, because the air or or the energy doesn't have to travel through the air in order to reach your hand. So you are in direct contact with the energy source in this case. Yes. So the heat transfer happens faster when you have conduction or when you're touching the surface. And that is why if you're getting something hot off of your stove, you might use a cloth or a pot holder or something to protect your hand. If you have something that puts layers of air between your hand and whatever's really hot or perhaps really cold, then that helps delay the energy transfer back and forth. That's the same reason that we were talking about wearing layers in our winter flying discussion, which actually on the podcast is going to be after this discussion, not before, but we've already held it. We are ready for step number four. Step number one is unequal heating. Step number two is pressure. Step number three is convection. And step number four is the Coriolis force. In a perfect world, we would have these really simple convection cycles where the air just kind of moves and you could almost visualize it in two dimensions, the air moving up and down. But in real life, it's actually very three-dimensional and complex with the air twisting and swirling around the highs and the low pressures as it's rising and sinking. So now the difficult question is why? Why is the air turning around the highs and the lows? Destiny J. Because of the Coriolis force. Yes. So that is exactly correct. And does anyone want to help explain why the Coriolis force exists or what the mechanism is? Enrique. So pretty much because of the angular moment and the Earth, it's a sphere. You have different moments depending on which latitude you are. So, for example, in the Ecuador, that force is the maximum one. And in order to keep everything moving at the same speed, and that's a quote-unquote citation here, um, things need to move at different speeds. So, as far as you are from the Ecuador, things need to move faster in order to follow the movement from, from the Ecuador line. And that's why you have that bending moment from the air masses towards the Ecuador. Yes. So. It's all because of the Earth's rotation. If the Earth didn't rotate, there would be no Coriolis force. One of the principles that we know in aviation is that if something is spinning, the farther away you are from the center, the faster you have to travel. Think about an airplane propeller. Pretend that there are two flies on it or little insects on it. There's one insect or fly 
near the center of the propeller, and then there's one way out on the propeller tip. As the propeller starts turning around, which fly would be traveling faster if they could manage to hang on? Oh, hey, Z, go right ahead. Well, that one would be the little bug on the outside towards the outside of the wing would be really having trouble hanging on there, I would think. Yeah. I mean, realistically, it would really have trouble hanging on. But the one that's farther on the outside is traveling faster. So now think about the Earth rotating on its axis. And think about how the equator, the land at the equator, is actually rotating faster than the land at the poles. So the wind doesn't stay exactly attached to the Earth. All the land, of course, is going to move at the same rate. But with the wind, as it's moving from the highs to the lows, the wind is actually moving in a straight line but it appears to be curved from the surface of the earth because it's actually the earth that's moving and not the wind rotating, I should say. So does anyone have any good examples to explain Coriolis for us? A lot of theme parks or even like a merry-go-round, like those things that spin on the playground for children. If you stand in the middle and you try throwing a ball to a friend who's not standing on it, you will believe that you're throwing the ball straight, but it's not really going to go straight. Likewise, if you're spinning around the edge and they try to throw a ball to you, maybe you are directly in front of them when they start throwing it. But by the time the ball has reached you, you've already turned more and now you're out of the way. Maybe they could sort of plan to lead their throw a little bit and try to throw it to where you will be in the future, but that is exactly how it happens. I want to tell you about how I used to teach this in ground schools. This is easier to teach in a classroom, and one part of me wishes we were all in a classroom, and if we were, I would hand out styrofoam coffee cups to everyone. It's very common to have coffee at flight schools and airports, so that's why I started this experiment. Pretend that you have one of these in front of you. You want to take your styrofoam coffee cup and put it upside down with the opening on the bottom. And we're going to pretend that the widest part of the coffee cup, which is down on a table, is the equator. And then the narrowest part, the bottom of the coffee cup, which is now at the top, is representing the North Pole. Now, I'm going to do this for the Northern Hemisphere because that's where I've done more teaching. But One of these days, I will figure out how to do it all for the Southern Hemisphere as well, which is just the opposite. So I would actually have my students take a pen and write on the cup. I would have them write the word equator at the bottom, which is on the table, and have them write North Pole at the top so that they know what they are representing. Then we would talk about what you could expect for the pressures at each one. At the North Pole, it's cold and the air is sinking, is that going to be a high pressure or a low pressure area? High pressure at the surface and low pressure at the uh, at altitude. Yeah, yeah. And we'll just talk about the surface now that I confused you all with talking about pressures aloft. And Dusty J, I know you were right behind him. Do you agree? Is the air sinking at the North Pole? Is that a high pressure? Yes, I do. Great. And so I know you know the answer to the next question. At the equator, where the warm air is rising, what kind of pressure area is that? That would be a low pressure. Exactly. So I would have my students 
write on their styrofoam cup, I had them put an H up at the top near where they were, no, wrote the word North Pole. And I would have them put an L near where they wrote the word equator at the bottom of the cup. And again, remember the cup is inverted when I'm talking about top and bottom. So now we're going to just have them draw a line from the H to the L or from the North Pole to the equator without rotating the cup. Everybody should get a nice straight line. Then they should do the same thing again, except they should have a friend rotating the cup as they draw the line. They put their pen at the H, they have their friend start rotating the cup, and they try to draw a straight line down. They are moving their hand in a straight direction, but on the cup, it ends up looking like it's a curved line and not a straight line. Does that make sense? Z? It totally makes sense. And I have my doodle here and I've got, the, so yeah, what, that's a great visual. Thank you. Yeah. The other thing to remember is just for an added bonus, it's more fun if you turn the cup in the correct direction. So where does the sun rise? Does it rise in the east or the west? The sun rises in the east for me. Yeah, it does. It does. The good news is it rises in the east for everybody. But <laughs> I think I know what you're getting at, which is that the relative motion of the air as it appears on the earth is not the same in the northern and the southern hemisphere. Is there anyone who's in the southern hemisphere right now besides Enrique? Enrique, you are our guest of honor. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that. In the Southern Hemisphere, actually, sorry, Enrique, I've got to go Northern first because this is how I'm so used to teaching it. In the Northern Hemisphere, if you're moving in the direction of the wind, which direction does it turn? Does it turn to the right or to the left? Gab? Left. I'll take another answer. Destiny, Jay? That's on um, my turns, hemisphere again. Yeah, it turns to the right. Yeah, yeah. It does turn to the right, and that's okay. I have to think about it every time as well. So the air moves to the right in the northern hemisphere. It moves to the left in the southern hemisphere. And when we're talking about it moving, remember that we're always speaking about it moving from a high to the low. It never goes the other direction from a low to a high. So around the high pressure area, and the northern hemisphere, would that be clockwise or counterclockwise? And many people in the world actually say anti-clockwise. I know that some people in here probably use that term instead. So if it's turning to the right in the northern hemisphere, is that clockwise or counterclockwise? It seems like clockwise would be the answer. It is. So then... If it's going into a low pressure, it's now eventually going to be rotating in the other direction. We're still in the northern hemisphere, and that would be counterclockwise or anticlockwise, depending on which culture you are in and what term you learned. So there are some memory aids that we can do for this. One of them that I like to do is making a fist and pointing my thumb. If you are in the northern hemisphere, you are going to use your right hand. And it would be your left hand if you are in the Southern Hemisphere. So go ahead and give a thumbs down symbol with your hand first. Let's we'll start with a thumbs down symbol. Your thumb is pointing down, which shows the high pressure air sinking toward the surface of the earth. 
Now look at where the rest of your fingers are pointing. If you are using your right hand for the northern hemisphere, then your fingers are pointing in a clockwise direction. Do you see how that works? And of course, Enrique in Brazil, he would be using his left hand with a thumbs down and getting the correct answer for the southern hemisphere. Now, take your thumb and gives a thumbs up symbol, and that symbolizes the air rising in a low pressure. And now your fingers are pointing or rotating in the other direction. And the northern hemisphere, that's where you get that counterclockwise direction. So that is my hand signals to help remember what the highs and the lows do. We are mostly done with the fourth step of weather foundations, although we're going to actually come back to that really soon again. But now let's review where we've come and we're going to go on to the last and the fifth step. Step number one, unequal heating of the earth's surface. Step number two, that leads to different pressures. Step number three, that leads to convection or the mixing of the air. Step number four is the Coriolis force. Oh, I forgot to mention, I put a link on the handout to a YouTube video that shows people throwing balls off of turning merry-go-rounds. There are great YouTube videos if you are still having trouble visualizing this. Now, last step is friction. Step number five. Let's talk about friction because nothing is simple in meteorology. As a matter of fact, we say that meteorology is the ultimate chaos theory. That means that tiny little changes in one area can have a big effect in other areas. Most meteorologists have PhDs and really impressive computers and algorithms, and it's still impossible to predict the weather accurately more than a few days out in a lot of areas of the world. And depending on the weather, sometimes it's impossible to predict it even a couple hours out accurately. So friction. At a high altitude, are you going to expect stronger tailwinds or, or just weaker winds in general? At a high altitude, are the winds stronger or weaker? Telly? They're much stronger. Yes. And of course, that is because as you descend down toward the surface, you get more friction. So that is relatively easy to explain with straight line winds. But now let's throw it into our curving and descending and rising air model that we've gotten with this 3D picture that we've talked about. This is where it gets a little bit more confusing, and it is on page four of the handout. As the air is rotating, let's say it's rotating around a high pressure, as you go up in altitude, will the spirals of air spiral more tightly or less tightly? Can you repeat that? Okay. Let's say that you are in the middle of a high-pressure area on the ground and the air is spiraling around you. As you go up in altitude, will the spirals get tighter or looser? They'll get looser. Not quite. It's actually the opposite. So it has to do, again, with the friction of the Earth. As you're climbing up in altitude, we would say that the wind is doing something called veering. In the northern hemisphere, that means it's moving more clockwise. 
And then as you descend, it does something called backing or moving counterclockwise. So that is how friction affects the wind. So in your mind now, we should have a really three-dimensional model. As it's coming out of a high pressure area, and this is on page five if you want to follow, there's a nice picture there. You want to visualize it, at least from the northern hemisphere, moving down, because again, that's what the high pressure is, moving out, because it has to move from the high to the low, and in the northern hemisphere, moving clockwise. And then it kind of spirals around and goes in twists almost up into that low pressure. And again, there's a great visual on page five. In the low, again, it moves up, in, and counterclockwise or anticlockwise, depending on how you call it. I want to ask you just a few other terms before we move on. And we're actually going to take a break really soon. Let's say that there is a line of high pressure. What is that called in meteorology terms? Gab. A ridge. Yes. And what is it called if there's a line of low pressure and Dusty J? A trough. Yeah, a trough. T-R-O-U-G-H. So a line of high pressure is a ridge and a trough is a line of low pressure. So which one is more common to see marked on charts? Phil. A low pressure trough associated with bad weather. Yes. So the trough is the one that is more common to be on a chart. And you said it, but I want to make it really clear. Why do we care more about low pressure than high pressure, essentially? Or why do people feel the need to be notified about it more? It's the extreme weather that may occur with those uh, trolls. Yeah, yeah. Low pressure is associated with bad weather. And as we move on to other sections in meteorology on other days, that is what we want to remember. Let's just talk just a little bit more. Why is it associated with bad weather? Let's start with Z. Well, I was just thinking this is uh, because it's so dynamic. Is it moving very quickly when you have a low pressure? Seems like it'd be very dynamic and fast moving weather. Yeah, um, you're getting on the right track. Does anyone want to add to that? We have the biggest delta in terms of um, different air masses. Also in terms of temperatures, you have the biggest deltas in that areas too. And that's why you see often those low pressure troke areas, especially in the States, when there is the jet stream coming up with Arctic air down to, uh, to the southern states, and then you may see snow there, which is not that common. Often. But over in Europe, we don't have that much of trokes like in the States. So when you say the biggest delta, are you saying the biggest change or the biggest instability? Difference. Yeah, the biggest difference. Yes. Okay. So a low pressure area is an unstable area as the air rises, and that can often sustain itself for a while. And then what happens as the air rises usually has to do with moisture. I don't have a step number six on here for foundations of meteorology. But different transfers of moisture might actually be the step six. I haven't thought that one through all the way, but I think it probably would be. 
So as the moisture is forced to rise up, it usually cools off and that eventually will create some type of rain or some type of bad weather. And that is often why there is bad weather associated with a low pressure area. On a chart, there are lines of equal pressure that are often marked. What is the official term for that? Destiny J. Those are isobars. Yes, isobars. So where does that word come from? Does anyone want to break down what the word iso or bar means? Gab. Iso means the same and bar is the pressure. Yeah, like barometric and iso means equal in Latin. What are some other examples of where you might use the word ISO? Enrique? Isotherm, uh, I line of the same um, temperature. Yeah, isotherm is equal temperature. Anyone else? Where else do we use ISO? Phil? Isohypes. Ooh, what is that? Line of equal pressure up in the air on a weather chart, for example. But. Uh, that can alter an altitude. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that one. Gab. Isotac, uh, so a line of the same speed. Yeah, or wind speed would be an isotac, a line of equal wind speed. And another one that comes to mind would be an isogonic triangle where there are equal sides on each, uh, or at least two equal sides. Okay, so... Now we know that isobars are these lines of pressure that can be drawn on a chart. When all of the isobars are close together, let's say that you have like the picture on the bottom of page five with a low pressure and a bunch of lines around it, isobars around it. When they're close together, what does that tell us about the wind speed? Destiny J. That is going to be a lot more stronger. Yes, it will be stronger. So that takes care of some of your test questions on a lot of the government tests. And that is a really good point for us to take a break. Just to recap what we said, again, you've got the atmospheric composition with nitrogen, oxygen, and other gases. Then you've got the troposphere, which is the layer of the atmosphere where we live. And then the root cause of weather is, one, unequal heating of the Earth's surface, which, two, leads to unequal pressure, which, three, leads to convection, which, four, is influenced by the Coriolis force, and five, is also influenced by friction. Hey, I forgot to give you one other memory aid. Remember that a ridge is high pressure, but remember that the high pressure is sinking air. So when you visualize a ridge, People think, oh, ridges, they're like mountain ridges. They're pointing up. Even though it's called a ridge, the air is actually moving down, not up. And a trough, people think of something with like a big depression that's pointing down. But remember that even though it's called a trough, the air is actually still moving up. Okay, we are really going to take a break. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers, 
I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the club pilot flight training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.